Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. You're listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a conversation with a guest sharing their story and insights about what can help when you're adapting to loss. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today's guest is Dean Lambert, a manager of the Love Always Project. He's also going to share with us the story of his son's death by suicide in 2015. Welcome to the Grief Stories podcast, Dean. Thanks for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So we're going to start today by talking about the Love Always project that you're involved with. And so I'd like to ask you to tell me a little bit about that project, please. Well, we started the Love Always project just a couple months ago, kind of a soft launch um, as we're building it out. Uh, Basically, we felt that um, there weren't enough people that were actively engaged in discussions about end of life issues, specifically planning your funeral in advance. And uh, and and uh, from the research that we did, people just don't understand what that means or how to do it. And so we thought, okay, well, this sounds like a good topic that's not uh, covered and spans generations. You know, you don't have to worry about whether it's an older issue or a younger issue. Um, uh, lots of people are thinking about their own mortality. So the other thing that we decided with the grassroots or with the uh, Love Always Project is to make sure that it was a grassroots effort. So we've built a website, we have social media, and we feel it's very important that much of the content, if not most of the content, comes from the users, the members of the Love Always Project. Um, and so we've created this grassroots effort to encourage people to talk about and plan for the end of life uh, emotionally and financially. And um, and that way, when uh, a loved one dies, it puts the emphasis on their ability to care for the people who will live on. And at the time of planning, you're able to focus more on, on the person's life and their memories than all the details of their death. And uh, so we've got this website. Uh, like I said, we've just launched it a, a couple of months ago. So we're really trying to build the content. If you go out there today, there's a lot of helpful stuff. Um, but in a week or so, we're going to be launching a forum where people can go on, join the Love Always Project. There's no cost to it. All it costs is your email address, and we're not going to spam you. Um and you could go on and, and it's it's a, a safe, secure place for you to talk about your experiences, whether you know what you're talking about, like like you do, Maureen, or whether you um, have questions um, and you're just exploring. And so uh, we hope that uh, there are conversations that go on and that people start to feel normal, if not a little less weird about talking about end of life issues. And there's a lot of reasons why you want to do that, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, that's beautiful. What a great project, right? This, Fun, you know, yeah. we we have become a society that doesn't talk very much about grief or death or end of life care. And so this idea of having people come together with their loved ones well in advance of needing this information to be decided and talking about it in a more comfortable way about what do you want? What's important to you? Um, How do we plan for that? How do we pay for that? All those kinds of pieces. 
and doing it before grief really visits, you know, because once you experience anticipatory grief, if you know it's coming or if you don't know it's coming and it's sudden and unexpected, um, it's so much harder to think about these things, especially if you haven't had the conversation. You know, and you and I, um, I think you mentioned anticipatory grief, which I don't think enough people know about themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously you've covered it on your podcast, but the more I look into it, the more, you know, it's a a very real thing. And I think because grief is experienced and, and, and it's a journey that's extremely individual, depending on your life's experiences. Um, we talked about uh, pre-grief as well. And pre-grief is something I didn't realize I was going through. I, and that's just my own coined phrase for when you have uh, somebody who died uh, um, and you need to plan a funeral immediately. And um, the, it, it, I, I say that you're in grief, but it's not manifesting as if the person was actually gone and the funeral's over and things like that. Um, that's part of the grieving process, but this pre-grief is a shocky, um, I have to do something, I'm either obligated to do it or how am I gonna do it? Or you find yourself with your back against the wall. And what happens when your back's against the wall? It's fight or flight. And so you make very um, emotional or very rash decisions, that's like rash meaning uh, opposite of rational, (laughs) to do what you think is right um, for this loved one who passed. And then when you mix in the family and you're coming together and you've got the person, you know, who was with the person who died, maybe they were, they were sick and then they got, you know, something accelerated quickly or God forbid in our case where it was suicide, you know? You come together and you and there are people in the family who think they know the person more, believe it or not, especially anybody who moved away all of a sudden is, you know, well, I'm taking care or I've been dealing with this person or I know them better. And there's conflict and that conflict um, adds to that pre-grief because you can't believe that you're having these fights with your family. And uh, and how could I say that? And how could you say that? And it's just it's not the best environment um, to get in that uh, dinghy and have it pushed off into the ocean where, you know, it kind of takes you, the, the, the um, current takes you on that journey. I really think that, that that's what uh, the grief process is. If you go into it from a very shocked, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's just a, um, a state oh, I'm, of I'm mind. A, yeah. I'm at a loss for the word uh, because it's going through my head again. You know, I'm having a, uh, the, I'm a copywriter. I can't come up with a word and you can see what's happening. I can't even come up with the word, but if you don't, I orderly is not the word, but when it's beset upon you like that, there is no ramp. It's a cliff. So anyway, I, I, that's another reason. And probably the biggest reason I think people should plan ahead and find ways to be able to have these discussions with their elderly parents or their parents that are in good shape eight, but older than you. Um, and then if you are, you know, getting up there in age, you know, in your seventies, even though you feel, you know, 50, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have life insurance and wills and things like that. So you are planning for your end of life, but you're doing it in a way that possibly allows you to avoid the subject of when I die, this is what needs to happen. This is how I want to be remembered. That does not happen when the funeral is needed immediately. 
Yeah. You know, I love the phrase pre-grief because I feel like it captures that window of time in the, in between the death and the time that it starts to become real. And so you have this experience and I think it can happen even when you have someone diagnosed with a terminal illness, it can be a shock when they actually die. Maybe it's the timing or the, the, the actual way they died despite their terminal illness, but especially when it's sudden and unexpected. And like in your case, suicide, that the shock of loss is really powerful. And there's this thing that our brain does to protect us. And we go into a bit of denial and it's like a, it's like a space where it can't be real. And that's part of like you were talking about what allows us to get through those tasks of the immediate funeral mm-hmm. planning and, and so forth. And then because you're in that state, just like you said, you might miss things. You might have arguments with people because there isn't a path that you've talked about. It's a really precarious place to be emotionally trying to plan a funeral. And so talking ahead of time means that you're less likely to be in so much pain and wounding one another. True. You know, at that you know, time. And there's, a, there's another example, and I would love to see a study on this as somebody who's trying to build bridges about having conversations, but my wife's father passed away in February and he got sick right after we all came together for the Christmas holiday for the first time in a long, long time. And um, so he was in the hospital for a while. He didn't have uh, COVID. He, he had a respiratory uh, illness. And then we also found out later that he had, uh, he didn't know it really either, but he had had some cancer and it, it just, you know, it got bad. So between that and respiratory, it was, it was not a, not a long time. So between December, when he, you know, went to the hospital and when he died, like February 5th, I think it was, or the fourth, there's a period of time where he's in the hospital and um, you're thinking, you know, this isn't the end. It can't be the end. They're treating it. They're actively treating it. But then when they say, Um, we're going to take him to the hospice floor or take him to a hospice facility. I truly don't believe that my wife who was there and my mother-in-law and some of the siblings that were there actually heard that that transition was being made. Um, But they didn't know what that meant. And so they didn't hear half the stuff that the care providers actually said to them, like, okay, on this floor, we're all about saving the life, preserving the life. When we move your father, it's all about making him comfortable and, you know, helping him cross over. And we're not going to do anything to preserve his life. So when you visit him, he could be, you know, there are a lot of stages before somebody actually, you know, dies. And um, so you're, so they probably did tell them these things, but because they had gone back from, Maybe they weren't in grief yet. I'm sure that it, it dawned on them that he might have been dying and they may have been mentally preparing themselves. But you, I believe that they stepped back. If any of them, you know, had been going through, um, you know, anticipatory grief, there's a step back that they must have taken where things get blocked out. Because when he did go to the hospice floor, there was a ton of confusion, not on the part of the hospital necessarily. You know, everybody can communicate better, but you've got four siblings, mom all sort of in a rush, everybody trying to get to the hospital. So these are all things that that you're not going to get away from when somebody is dying or has died, but you can minimize them certainly by understanding what parts of after the death occurs are taken care of. And at those times, I mean, uh, my mother-in-law was, you know, um, uh, when he went to hospice, finally, she had to think about, you know, um, you know, calling the right funeral home and 
preparing all that stuff and informing people and things. And that was a very quick, you know, it's almost like he died quickly, you know, like un- unexpectedly. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's why anything that you can do to talk about these things in advance, especially if they're productive conversations about, you know, um, what was your favorite thing to do? Now, some people think they know that dad went out and played shuffleboard, you know, the kind with little pucks in the sand, you know, mm-hmm. on the, not, not, uh, not, uh, uh, yacht club, uh, shuffleboard. Um, but there was, he did that every day, but it might not have been his favorite thing to do. And so, you know, when you, when you're able to have these conversations in a way that you're not talking about when you die, how do you want to be remembered? My, the way I talk about it to get into it is, um, not uh, mom, dad, we got to talk about your money and your final wishes. It's just asking questions about their life and their living. And, you know, mom, dad, you've been together 60 years. Dad, did you have a girlfriend or mom? Did you have a boyfriend before that? And did you think you would marry them? I mean, my mom was engaged before she agreed to get married to my dad, you know, and it was a big story. But those are the stories that made people smile. Those are the things you can focus on if the details have already been you know, arranged and especially paid for. Yeah. So that's what it's all about is making sure people have as healthy as possible. um, No regrets, nothing forgotten that you'll kick yourself for the rest of your life. Like almost happened to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me about your story because it was in that wave of pre-grief and trying to, you know, come to terms with what had happened that Mm -hmm. you talk about this um, experience of, of, uh, you know, even though, you know what, you know, mm-hmm. not knowing it in that moment. Right. Well, both my wife and I work um, closely in with funeral homes. We have uh, she has for almost 20 years and I have for mm, going on 31 years now. And so we know the process. We know the business. We we work um, together to help people prearrange and fund their funerals. That's what we do. Um, and um, so Jill and I are all set. Right. I mean, if God forbid something happens. We can be that resource to anybody who has a question. We can make recommendations. We can sit by them if they want to. We can help them reduce family conflict if they feel comfortable with us being there. You know, it's great. Well, July 5th of 2015, our son killed himself. He was in the military. He was in um, he was in uh, uh, Afghanistan. He came back and a year later, he was one of those 22 a day statistics. Um, and we had gone out the night before and truly enjoyed a a great 4th of July. Um, obviously he didn't like the fireworks and stuff, but we, we, it was just a great time. Anyhow, um, uh, uh, he did sneak out of the house and man, he, you talk about a planner. He had this thing planned to a T he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, he, uh, he, despite being in the military, he worked at a sporting good place where he tried to buy a shotgun. They wouldn't let him for some reason, something came back on his record, um, which is weird. Uh, and, um, so he knew that, uh, you didn't need a permit to buy a long rifle, a black powder rifle, you know, and he went to a place, um, where, you know, where I shop for a lot of hunting and fishing supplies. And he actually talked to the guy who's a really good buddy and the manager of the place. And I would never tell him. Uh, that he uh, was the one that, you know, sold that to my son and got in his uniform. And I mean, talk about a planner. He was, he was down, you know, to the last detail. He had completed some some things in his bio, uh, in his uh, journal and written something to each of us. 
Um, and uh, he had put certain things in his pocket. He had his dog tags wrapped around him. And when we found him, he was by a riverside. We're in a beautiful area. And he was peacefully, as I came around the bend, as I was working with the sheriffs to, to find him, um, uh, he, I, I saw him in his uniform and his uh, 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 combat stuff. And um, he was just laying there. And I followed my eyes. I saw the rifle on his chest. He, his both hands were next to him as if somebody placed them there. Mm. And, you know, aside from the injury, everything looked pretty good, you know, and like he was just. I mean, it's almost like a Romeo and Juliet where he laid down and took poison, except for it wasn't poison. Yeah. So anyway, so he, you know, was very, very meticulous about it. Yeah. Which is a complete contrast to what we had to do uh, yep. for the funeral. Yeah. So my son and I both ride with the Patriot Guard Riders, which was founded uh, about 12, 15 years ago uh, when people were protesting military funerals in America and Kansas. And so now there's all kinds of chapters for Patriot Guard writers. And Adam and I, that year that before he died, when he had between Afghanistan and when he uh, died, we had ridden with the Patriot Guard. Um, so he was a member. And when when we when he died, when we found him, one of the first calls I made was to my Patriot Guard captain. I think one of the first two calls I made. And uh, I remember the call very vividly. They asked me if I wanted to you know, ride in the escort or, you know, whatever. And we just, you know, and then I, I called a funeral director. I called my brother. I called my best friend. And I was, you know, it just was, you know, is one of those things, uh, you know, I was going to be a doctor and I'd worked with um, ambulances when I was growing up. And so I feel like I can handle that kind of stress. I was in go mode. So after everything that day, we went to the funeral home and the funeral director um, could have assumed that Jill and I, you know, we knew him. We'd been in that funeral home a million times, sometimes for funerals, but other times, you know, just because we're that's what we spend our time in. Mm -hmm. And this funeral director was so amazing that, you know, he did not assume anything because he knows his business like Maureen, like, you know, your business. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, except he didn't he didn't go through his process as if he knew his business, he was just doing his thing in a way that was guiding us, not directing us. And so he had his hand. I didn't notice this until this issue happened and he was going down his checklist. And of course, Jill and I are telling stories and things, you know, these, these arrangement conferences can go on for a long time because you're telling stories and that's part of the purpose, but you can't help it. So his fingers would turn white pressing down on the place. He did not want to leave the place so that he was taking us through the process. He finally got to the livery, which is a funeral profession word for the, the coach or the hearse, mm -hmm. the family cars, the flower cars, things like that. But in the Patriot Guard, a lot of funeral homes uh, purchased this thing called the Harley hearse. And I frankly have got a lot of funeral directors to spend $70,000, $60,000 on a Harley hearse, which is a caisson that's towed behind a, a large motorcycle or trike. And it's a beautiful thing for profession procession, especially for uh, uh, somebody in the military or a public safety officer, fireman, police, policeman, firefighter, whatever. When he got to that and he says, and I'm, I, I'm certain you want the Harley hearse, you know, you do know we have this. And that is the first time, Maureen, that it really hit me that he was gone and I was messed up okay. because I, I would have forgotten. Remember who I called first? Patriot guard. Yeah. How many of these Harley hearses I've sold? I know he has a Harley hearse. Yeah. You would think it was also one of the first things that I would ask. And he would say, let me make that check mark. And when we get to it, I just want to talk to you about it. No. Yeah. And to some people who are listening, it might not seem 
seem like a big deal, but think of the thing that you would least want to leave off in memorializing and remembering somebody who died. And think about how you get one shot to do it. And think about what would happen on top of the empty chair at the holiday table or your 4th of July or birthdays or whatever. And also that little detail that was a big deal that, that you forgot. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And that funeral director saved my, my life in a way. Because that's another thing I probably would have kicked myself about. This is why talking about these things is so important. Mm -hmm. And it's weird. It's hard. But there are ways to make it easier. And you owe it to yourself and your family to be conscious of how somebody wants to be sent off. Because the richest conversations about your relatives happen when you ask them about those things. Yeah. Well, and so... So clear to me, too, that it's important not to just have these conversations with the aged in our families, but to have the conversations with all ages. And so it might not surprise you that um, I have four kids between the ages right now of 15 and 24 and uh, that, you know, we've had this conversation around our dinner table about things like organ donation. And, you know, we, we have a sense of what each of our kids would want. Um, and I think, you know, that is, it's a lot of people shy away from that kind of a conversation. Yeah. They, they do because it's um, in some cultures, if you talk about end of life, it's going to happen. Yeah. And um, in our culture, we have blocked that part of the life process uh, away from us, starting in the Civil War when embalming was sort of invented, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, instead of your family member being laid out on the, the kitchen table for everybody to come in and everybody sees and the funeral director working on the embalmer working on, you know, uh, the, the deceased in your home. Um, to now when, when our parents get old, they are taken away and put into a long-term care facility and then they're taken to hospice and then they die. And you might be able to catch that last moment, but that last moment is sometimes peaceful, you know, um, and, and it happened and you expect it and, you know, and we've really desensitized ourselves to it. And it's not unlike what social media kind of does sometimes where you forget how to be human with people and how to experience that and how important it is to experience it. Um, I don't wish somebody leave, losing a loved one, quote, too soon um, on anybody, but it happens. And it's just something I think that we can better prepare for <laughs> and talk about it without it being something that is uh, gross or ugly or uh, makes you superstitious because you can yeah. talk about the life of the individual. You know, yeah, if we remember that death is part of life and that it comes to us all and that we don't get to predict or know when it's coming. And so the sooner we talk about it as a fact of life, as a matter of course, then the the more fodder we have for a good memorialization and a good plan um, for our loved ones. The people yeah. who are most important to us will get the benefit of that time that we spent talking about what was important to them. 
Yep. Statistically, um, we have uh, researched people who've prearranged their funerals and and paid for them. And um, one of the most important statistics, especially as a marketing person myself and a, a former business owner, and you always talk about like, you know, I don't know if when the last time you bought a car or taking your car into service, but the dealers have taught their folks to ask, hey, you know, we want a 10 star review. And if I didn't earn a 10 star review, tell me right now, because I want to make sure when you get our survey that it's a 10 star review and you're hearing about uh, Google reviews and things like that. And so um, there's theories about, you know, people who are promoters of your business versus detractors. And it's all about the quality of the experience and um, being so satisfied that you're willing to tell others. According to our research, which was a national study we, 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 uh, we do every other year, um, 100% of consumers who prearrange their funerals are satisfied with their decision to varying degrees from completely satisfied to very well satisfied to just satisfied. Zero people are not satisfied. And within one month, this is when we do the study is a month after they planned, Within a month of planning, 42% of the people of prearranged have told somebody else to do it. Not that they've just told their family, hey, we did this. They've mm -hmm. recommended it to others. So you've got this high satisfaction and this high recommendation. And all of a sudden, you know that when somebody does it, they feel like they've accomplished something. They've done something smart. They've protected their family. And they want to tell others, you guys should do this too. And so we know that it's a good thing. We just, we just also know that, you know, a large majority of the people who would be willing to do it if they knew it was available, don't know it's available. And that's, mm -hmm. that's why our project is so important. Yeah. Getting the word out that it's okay to talk about death. It's okay to, to really talk about what do you want, get your wishes known, make the plans. And then you've relieved a big burden that mm -hmm. happens when you're in the thick of those stages of grief, those phases of grief, the experiences that you're going to have when you start mourning. Yeah. yeah. And, and you use the word start mourning. Um, you know, a lot of us deal with it in different ways. And to a big extent, I don't think that I fully, you know, grasped it. I don't like going to the cemetery. I've been there a lot of times, especially on Patriot card things. And I always visit when I'm at the cemetery, he's at the veteran cemetery. But I have to drive by it every single day. It's a mile from my house on the entrance to the interstate. And the place that he died is it's a down right down my hill. So yeah. twice a day, every day, coming in and leaving, I, I'm I see it. And it's hard for me. Uh, my wife, though, she never wants to move because he's right there. Yeah. So um she, I think, has, uh, despite being the mother, there's a, there's, I don't care what anybody says, the connection between a mother and a child, there's just, you know, I mean, you shared a body for nine months. Yes. It's just something that does not go away. And I'm not trying to start a political thing, but that's just the way it is. I firmly believe it. Yet my wife, I feel, has grieved better than me. You know, she mm -hmm. got, she had emails coming to her 365 a day. She subscribed to this, this affirmation thing. She's read books. Um, she goes to the, the cemetery and I just, I, you know, for whatever reason, I haven't done it. And it's, it's likely a fear that I'm going to hit some kind of a wall or whatever, like I did at the funeral home. And that's scary to me. And yeah. so everybody has a, a different way of going through it. Um, and certainly just like any other process, you'll take two steps forward and one or three back. And, um, uh, if you can, if you can go through it in a healthy way, turn to people like yourself who understand how to guide people through their own journey. Um, then I think that's also helpful, but none of that can happen 
if the uh, end of life process was, you know, so disruptive, it, it just starts you on the wrong foot, I think. Yeah, especially if you miss things or you have regrets or you feel like you made bad decisions because they were feeling pressured because of time and timing and all of those things. And, you know, you're absolutely spot on, Dean. Everybody goes through grief in their own way at their own time. I'm a firm believer in the fact that we can't hurry grief, um, but we also can't escape it. And right. so um, whenever we can do something that eases the path that we can be with our grief in our own way, in our own time, I feel like that's something that is a, a benefit that's going to help us find hope and healing mm -hmm. in, in the process of our adjusting to the loss of our person. Yeah, I've heard a couple of uh, folks who are involved in uh, the funeral business and grief business. I can't I wish I could have patented this this phrase, but remember well. Mm. Uh, the emphasis there to me is not the remember so much as as the meaning of the word. Well, you know, you yeah. want to uh, have good memories of the person who you lost, uh, despite what your relationship was. You had a relationship, um, but being well yourself, um, yeah. remembering an individual is, I think, just as important because uh, it does affect you for the rest of the days that you're on the planet. And uh, um, if it's if it's not healthy and it's burdensome, it can affect decisions that you make. It can affect your attitude on life. It can affect your attitude towards others who haven't lost a parent or a child. Mm -hmm. um, and so remembering somebody well starts with being able to have a healthy outlook towards the you know final days or moment. Uh, of you or your loved ones. And so we just want to make sure that people feel okay, you know, talking about it or finding ways. And that's why it's important that 80% of the content on our site is people talking about it. Because as you said, I think we agree. Um, everybody has interesting perspectives and mm -hmm. their own experiences. And it's based on how they grew up, you know, what their background is, what happened every single moment of every day of their life before, during, and after somebody dies. And so that grief process and the way they approach it, there's, I'm sure there's a million, I'm sure there's a hundred million stories out there that I would love people to share and learn from, at least to let them know it's okay to feel or not feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that's very much what the Grief Stories Project is about, is mm -hmm. trying to bring as many perspectives as possible so that people will find something that resonates, something that feels, you know, connectable to them. And yeah. uh, because you're you're absolutely right. There's um, there's I always say there's really no way to do this wrong. You know, um, I sometimes add the caveat if you're not hurting yourself or someone else. Mm -hmm. But but. I also respect the fact that pain is part of grief. So that's kind of a loose caveat, you know? Yeah. And you know what? Um, it's interesting you say that because um, you don't realize what you can do in hurting yourself or somebody else that doesn't involve, you know, injury, uh, physical injury. Yeah. Um, you know, um, uh, whether you get really quiet and people don't know how to interpret that. Are you mad at me? Or what's going on? Um, are you you know, considering, you know, something drastic for yourself. Um, when somebody close to you sees you going through something and either feels help powerless to help or scared, that's also hurting them. Yeah. And um, so that's why I think that um, that uh, healthy uh, grief um, as an individual will, will 
call it help, healthy grief for themselves. I'm just so careful to make sure folks understand that it is not a one size fits all. Now, there are people like yourself who understand how to help somebody come to their conclusions and their correct grief path. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's different for everybody. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like knowing what questions to ask or what things to observe. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure a lot of the times when you're counseling folks or when you're talking to people, you're just having a talk. Yeah. I spend a lot of time having conversations about this kind of stuff and um, talking to people, first of all, about what's normal, quote unquote, um, you know, because people worry that they're not doing it right. And so we clarify right away that there's not one right way. And um, and then, you know, making some suggestions maybe here or there, but always in an invitational way, you Mm -hmm. know. Does this feel like this might be something? Some people find this comforting. So I feel like it's something that might be comforting to you. And it's kind of like we walk together for a time. And I'm just sort of a guide on the nature path of grief, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and I can point some things out to them, but what they take in and what they take away is their own choice. Right. You know, right. what and feels yeah, right for them. It's got to be hard for, for all kinds of counselors that, um, you know, you kind of hope that people can walk away having your voice or having your presence in there to guide them when you're not there. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, if people don't aren't allowed to go and, you know, try their life after, you know, that, then um, they don't know whether, you know, they're on the right path or what work they have to do. And it is it's yeah. work. It's work, you know, but so is. Is, so is life. <laughs> you know, you know, Jean, sometimes I say that the first year after a death is like trial by trial by fire because you're just in the flames of grief and you're trying to make your way through um, and figure out which end is up and what to do next. And then Mm -hmm. the second year is uh, trial and error. So you know what you tried in the first year and some of it might've worked and lots of it might not have. And so you start tweaking that in the second year that you're going through this process. And by the third year, you might have some rhythm to the ways that you grieve and the ways that you remember and honor your loved one and the ways that you are coming back to um, some kind of routine in this new space where you've, you're starting to adjust to it. And, you know, when it's a traumatic loss, that process can take three to five years, you know, because it's complicated. It is. Um, By the experience of, of trauma response, it's not just grief. And so this, you know, there's, it's not a quick route. Yeah. Well, um, it it does. It's not a quick route. And I think also we've talked about everybody's individual path, you know, if it knock on wood, God forbid is my spouse, right. Um, I'm very dependent on her just the walking around the house, you know, she was in Washington DC this weekend uh, with my daughter who's getting married and her dress came in and, you know, they were off. And um, I told my daughter, I said, don't tell your mom, but I think I miss her, you know? And it's, and it's, it's, I know she's right there. We got FaceTime and everything else, but it's actually the physical presence in, in the house, you know? Um, And so Uh, with my son, it was completely different. You know, he was in Afghanistan. He was, you know, by all accounts, you know, doing great. He was field promoted. He makes people laugh. Uh, He's funny. He's the center of attention. He's empathetic. Um, People go to him with their their problems, all that stuff. Right. But I wasn't dependent upon him and he also hadn't lived with us. So I'm trying to like grasp at memories and trying to create a, a picture. And the only way I can do that is not by where he was, you know, uh, at 
the time he was an adult because he was 24 when he died. The point is, is that is that so how am I reconstructing things? I'm trying to remember when he was younger. I'm trying to see his cherub face. And that's, you know, that's not the way that's not an optimal way to remember him, because really the person that he was when he died uh, is the culmination of all those things. But it's the part it's the thing I, I, you know, am proudest of. And I'm having trouble constructing that, you know. But it's because he didn't live on, with me. He didn't depend on me. I didn't depend on him. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting. Everybody's path is is so different, you know. Yeah. And and you're hitting on an important point about how grief is impacted by the relationship and the nature of the time that you spend together. Mm-hmm. And if you have a spouse and your spouse works away half the year, that's going to be a different loss experience than a spouse that you spend every waking moment together because now you're retired and you shop together and you vacation together and you do all these things. And so, so the loss experiences are so different based on relationship and, and all of those pieces that go with that. And that comes out in the, in the stories that people tell about how they um, deal with end of life and how they plan for end of life. And um, so, you know, I think we're both on really good missions. Um, I think that one of the things I think that prevents people and it's unfortunate the 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 way we're evolving into, uh, you know, we're working remotely, um, we're talking behind a keyboard, we're doing a lot of less, le- a lot less things where we can't get the feel the visceralness of being in somebody's space, talking, yeah. loving or having an argument. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be increasingly more difficult, perhaps, even though I believe people are. Um, because news travels fast, people are grieving every day about somebody. Taylor Hawkins, the drummer for Foo Fighters died. I was devastated. (laughs) Naomi Judd just died. Um, you know, the Bob Saget thing. Then you see the war in Ukraine and you see, you know, uh, uh, little kid, you know, it's just little kids starving and things like that. And so now you're getting pounded by it. And so I think it's good that, you know, that, um, end of life is, um, more prominent now, but we still, um, need some help in how and how to deal with it. Um, Honestly, um, I think the 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 veteran suicide is a is a pandemic or an epidemic. Um, Two weeks before my son killed himself, one of his boot camp mates killed himself about three weeks before that. There was another guy in their line that killed himself. And a month after Adam died, a 40 year old high ranking NCO in the Marines died because he yeah. missed a call from somebody who was suicidal and wasn't there to help. Yeah. And what happens, they see on social media till Valhalla, you know, you were awesome, man. And so it's almost encourages them to think it's a way out. And yeah. so unfortunately, you know, we're not learning how to interpret these things in a way that that's healthy and people don't often seek help. You know, so that's that's a challenging thing. It is. I I do a fair bit of work in suicide loss and suicide prevention. And, um, you know, when someone's thinking about suicide, it often feels like their only choice when they get there. They're in they're in a space of such pain and such tunnel vision that they often feel that that's their only choice. And they're trying to relieve a burden. And they they actually don't see that when they relieve their pain when they release their pain and die, that they're actually just transferring the pain to their survivors. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this process where survivors of suicide loss are actually at a high risk of suicide themselves for that very reason. Um, 
you know, they can see that someone relieved their pain and now they're feeling immense pain themselves. Right. And it becomes suddenly an option, maybe where it wasn't before yeah. or, or where it was before it's a more of an appeal. And so there's this process that, um, that happens and it becomes hard to turn that focus back to life and back to hope, but that's always the goal. Can we right. bring someone's focus back to hope and life and let them know that they're valued and loved and important? And will they let us, will they give us the chance to do that? Yeah. And I think the tough part is too, that so many people who, who die by suicide, um, you know, a lot of times they, they're bearing a burden that they won't or can't bring themselves to talk about and get out of them. And um, I think that that's, you know, that's tough. Uh, that's, that's the toughest thing. There's a lot of families out there that actually find that there was this thing that if they just would have told me, you know, you see yeah. it in the movies and I'm sure in yeah. your practice, you've seen it all the time. And it's like, yeah. you know, um, it doesn't make it any easier though, for you not to kick yourself because then you blame yeah. yourself for them not feeling like they could come to you with it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah. there's just so much pain in all of yeah. it. Yeah. You know? It's, it's fraught yeah. with pain mm-hmm. and, and no easy answers. Certainly not. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dean, for joining me today, for talking to me about the Love Always Project and for sharing the story of Adam and uh, your process with that. Great to be here. And and, uh, and, uh, I do admire what you do. And I'm I'm glad there's good people like you who are willing to dedicate time and resources and and lives to to helping people through this because uh, it does happen to all of us and not all of us know how to navigate it. In fact, yeah. hardly anybody knows how to navigate it. So, yeah, well, and I think between your project and our project, we're trying to help more people, more and more people know how to navigate it all the time. And, uh, and maybe our vision for the future is that, you know, the, the ones who don't know how to navigate it are few and far between. Because well, and, and also, right. And with your podcast and, and our effort, um, I think it gives people, hopefully people will have permission to feel like they can talk about it. Um, and again, we can observe and learn from the dialogue so that we become better helpers. Mm-hmm. Um, and really that's, I think where that, what people need to do is it, is that is they need to teach us how to help them. Um, uh, and, and certainly they can do that by talking to one another. And frankly, if a, if a person's afraid to go to somebody they think is an expert, uh, maybe they're more apt to listen to somebody who they feel like has gone through similar uh, types of uh, of of uh, issues. So very much so. You know, I've talked on this podcast before about the fact that you do not need to be an expert to help someone in grief. You just need to show up ready to listen mm-hmm. and be with the person where they're at. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah for yeah. sure. Well, good. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dean. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard. Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we realize that these stories may be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org, for more stories of hope and healing.